Um, all right, so uh, we, we covered an entire chapter last week, and so if you missed last week, uh, I would encourage you to go back into our podcast and uh, be able to, to pick up on truly the Lord's Prayer, which he prayed for himself. He prayed for those that um, would follow him in his lifetime, and then he prayed for us. And, and, and in this particular passage, he turns the page and it says, so then Jesus, having said those things, left. He left this city of Jerusalem and he goes out of the city into the Kidron Valley over into a little garden that he knew about. And as we're kind of orienting our minds towards this story, let me pull up. And let me also orient our minds uh, to the bigger picture. Remember the purpose of the book of John, that all these things were written so that we might believe that Jesus, not just believe some things, but believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, it's not just belief for belief's sake, but by believing, we may have life, the specific kind of life that is found in the name of of Jesus. And as we think about those things, my invitation to you today is to follow Jesus, follow the disciples. It says specifically that Jesus goes into this garden with his disciples. Would you count yourself as one of those disciples in today's story? Would you go into the garden with Jesus? Because when we go there, we're going to find some deeper answers than the, what the world has provided for really hard questions. The, the, the most difficult question perhaps being this. When suffering and trials of all kinds hit you, what is your response? When suffering smacks you in the face, what is your reaction? I'll tell you what my reaction is. When suffering of, of little bitty kinds and of real big kinds happen for me, I react by trying to clean. Like, I don't know if that's you, but I, I, like, I, I don't know what it is, but like when there's disorder that hits me, I try to create order. And all, usually the women in the house are being like, oh yeah, I totally get that. For whatever reason, like this part of me more relates to the female image of God than the male image of God. And I don't understand what that's all about, but that's just part of me. So I saw a lot of women be like, oh yeah, I got that. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what that is about me, but when, when, when just disorder hits me, I try to control. And the only thing I can control is like whatever's right here. And usually what's right here is the contents of my daughter's sock drawer. That's usually what's right here. And also what's over there, and also what's over there, and over here. I've, I have found socks in the pantry. Like I don't know what gets so immediate and urgent in the pantry that their socks must come off, but I have found them there too. Like I, I don't get it, but I get delusioned into thinking that my kids have emptied their sock drawers one by one all over our home week after week. Mm, Carol's here. You know it's a good day when Carol Barron's in the house. I'm gonna get some support and some love up in here. All the rest of y'all just sit there. Carol's got this. Right? So they just like empty their sock drawers and she amen that already. I won't repeat it and you shouldn't either, but... I cope with this disorder by creating order. And here's what's really going on in the recesses of my soul, because I'm not really upset at the socks. I want Jesus to run the world like I, want, I would run the world. And the only way that I can kind of recapture that little bit of sanity is by finding a dirty sock somewhere in the corner and being like, Ellie, 
Reese. I know it's Ellie. Ellie, get over here. I'm not going to pick it up. You come over here and do it. As I'm cleaning, he usually, Jesus and his spirit usually reminds me gently that things are not as they should be and they're not yet as they one day will be. See, that's what's going on in the, in the recesses of my soul. If I could just reflect for a moment instead of getting disoriented, but instead to be reminded that God is in control. I usually say in my heart, we better control those socks somehow. Get them back in the drawer somehow, or perhaps go in the drawer for the first time. I don't think they use the drawer, actually. The house is the drawer. So how about you? When suffering and trials of all kinds hit you, what is your response? Do you try to control what little world that God's given you? Do you burst out in anger? Do you start to accuse God? Do you walk away from him? Do we throw a little hissy fit in the corner? Do we run to, to, to like worse things than just emotional outbursts? Do we dip into things that we really shouldn't be doing that? Knowing it's bad for our souls. What is your reaction? What do you do? Whether it's the big stuff or the small and insignificant or seemingly insignificant things that hit you, what is your reaction? Because today's text is going to put us in the garden with Jesus and things are going to feel like they are spiraling out of control. That's what it's going to feel like for these guys. It's felt that way for a long time for Judas. And so it's no wonder that he shows up with his band of soldiers. You see, he wanted a coup. He wanted Rome to be overtaken by Jesus. And Jesus was the promised military leader that he'd hoped for. Or at least that's what he thought. But all good leaders will disappoint their followers. And with the disappointment that Judas received from Jesus, he accuses him. I wonder what you do when your leaders disappoint you. I wonder if you go like Judas and you grab your band of friends and complain and gossip and then come together and make accusation against your boss or against whomever. See, disappointment hits us in all sorts of different ways. Usually, when we've thought too highly of something or just like Judas, thought he was gonna do one thing and instead he does another when trials hit you, what do we do? You see, you and I aren't that different from Judas, if we're real honest. If we, if we sang what we sang today, we, we did sing some hard things, that we betray him. We said that. We said that together. We're not that different. We expect certain things from Jesus, and when he doesn't deliver, we too show up in his garden wondering when he'll do what we want him to do, when we want him to do it. We do this with Jesus. We certainly do it with our leaders. And so Jesus invites us into this garden with his disciples and let's follow them into this garden where all of a sudden the band of 12 are reunited if just for a moment. The one stands in opposition and the 11 stand wondering what's gonna happen next. So he invites us there because it is there that we discover the kind of Savior that isn't here to do what we want when we want. He is here to do what his Father wants in the time that his Father has appointed. 
It's in this garden where he's met with us, us disciples, countless times before. He's met with us in this garden to teach us to pray, to teach us that solitude is a really valuable thing for our souls, to trust who God is and what his plan is, and to gain strength for the journey ahead. And it is to this garden that we now turn to be reminded of some simple truths. First and foremost being that Jesus, despite what our circumstances will tell us, is in control no matter what. Jesus is in control. That's what the Bruvers just read about. And so I'll just read one verse, right? Verse four, he says this. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, Right here in the Bible, the most heinous thing is about to happen in literally all of the earth's history, and he knows exactly what is about to go down. You see, throughout the book of John, a common theme that has crawled through every story, every miracle, particularly at the end, is that Jesus knows all things. He is in complete control, even when it's utter chaos, in verse thir- excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1, it says that he knew it was his last night, for his hour had come. Turn with me just to verse 13. Cha- sorry, chapter 13, just to the left. You don't have to pu- pull this up, Nathan. Verse 13, 1, chapter 13, verse 1. Now that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he knew his hour was here. We scroll down to 11, and what does it say? For Jesus knew who was to betray him. He knew his hour was here. He knew Judas was about to get up and betray him. Verse 27 of 13. So then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, go do it quickly. He knew exactly what this hour meant. Again in 38. He knew that his, he, his, one of his disciples was going to betray him. He knew his other disciples would not have the fortitude to stick it through. Jesus answered to Peter, will you lay down your life for me? I don't think so. And in 16, it goes on to say 1632. If you just took one little page over, Look what Jesus says. Now do you believe, 32 now? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. He knows his darkest hour is at hand, and he steps in in only the way that Jesus can step in. Not to rescue from circumstance or to to chaos, but to rescue us from our greater enemy, sin and death. And so you know, all these reminders about Jesus knowing what's going on, why? Because Jesus could have gone anywhere, but he chose to go to a garden that Judas knew about. He chose to go to a place that was familiar, not just to the 11 that were still with him, but to the one that he knew was going to go get a band of soldiers to come and arrest him. He knew exactly the place that Judas was coming to come and find him. This idea that Judas came with temple guards, both Jewish authorities and with Roman authorities. It's interesting, this word for this band of soldiers, this cohort, it could have been anywhere up to 600 soldiers. I don't think that he had that many, but it could have been. Think dozens of soldiers that are there with lanterns and torches and weapons 
And Jesus knows. Circumstances are breaking out for the disciples that they do not prefer, and Jesus knows. And he's in control of it all. He leads them to this place where they will see the bigger picture. Though Jesus is in control, he willingly laid down his life in the moment so that others can live. You see, there, Peter's about to do something crazy here in a minute. He's about to try and secure their own physical safety. And Jesus, knowing all things, submits himself to the Father's will and to humanity. And as he does so, he challenges us. He invites us to believe some things about him that maybe we're not comfortable believing. That he actually doesn't have his own physical safety at the top of his priority list. He has also not your physical safety at the top of his priority list. Instead, he does have our spiritual safety at the top of his priority list. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Will we continue to trust Jesus when he doesn't share in keeping our priorities, when he doesn't keep us from pain and suffering in our hearts or in our bodies? Because he knows there's a greater reward that if we are still hurting in our spirits, in our souls, then all is lost. And so he comes after our greatest need and provides for the greatest need. This week we were sitting down for um, family discipleship at breakfast. We do ours at breakfast. I don't know when you do yours, but you should be doing it at some point. We do ours at breakfast. And I looked across the table at my three kids and I said, so what's more important, that God provides for your physical needs or your spiritual needs? And it split the room. One of them said physical and one of them said spiritual. We're in the middle of Lent. Jesus is, Lent is this time where Jesus goes into the desert where he forsakes physical uh, uh, sustenance so that he can truly be led and fed by the Spirit of God. And what does the enemy do? The enemy first provokes him and tempts him. If you are the Son of God, make these stones into bread. What does Jesus say? Oh, man does not eat on bread alone, but on the very will of God. There's something better for us, especially during Lent, to be reminded that God is caring for us in our souls and not just in our bodies or in our hearts. A beautiful reminder. Will we trust him to flourish our soul, especially when it might mean he won't flourish our bodies? Might. I think this is at the heart of the question that Jesus asks, whom do you seek? You see, when you don't get your way, when you want your way to be gotten, whom do you seek? When you lose your job, when you lose your friends, for whatever reason, I mean, goodness, we're flaky people. When you lose your job or lose your friends or you lose a loved one to cancer or worse, you get diagnosed. When you lose that baby or or when you, when you don't lose that baby and you get that baby and you get to see that baby get birthed, but you get this extra little gift of postpartum, depression. And, and no matter what you do, it won't go away. Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek in these times? Whom do you seek when you're trying your hardest? I know y'all. Y'all are doing your best. Still doesn't seem enough. Still got that hole you're trying to fill. Whom do you seek? 
Life just isn't panning out. There are circumstances that you wish were smoother. You wish you had a better relationship with that person. That person over here won't even look at you when you come into this room. We don't know what you did with that. I mean, chaotic circumstances, both emotionally or physically. Whom do you seek? See, we will and will we follow Jesus into the garden seeking the Father's will just like Jesus did or will we meet Jesus there like Judas, accusing him for not running the world like we want him to run the world and pointing out every sock that is out of order in this world, capturing every little victory that we can while quietly rebelling against what God is truly doing for our souls. Friends, Jesus is in control. He is in control. He was in control in the Garden of Eden, and he is in control in this Garden of Gethsemane. He could have done things differently. He could have done things differently in Eden, and he could have done things differently in this Garden, but he chose not to. Will we trust his wisdom? See, underneath every story of Old Testament and New is this question, will you trust God? Or will you trust what you can see? Your perspective, your ideas, how you would do things. Will we trust him? See, we may not always see his full plan. Jesus is in control and working, which leads us to this second nugget that in this garden, God is going to give us today. Not only is he in control, but because Jesus is in control, he is powerful. I love what Jesus does so subtly in this, uh, this part of this passage. You see, John stands out as a unique, as unique uh, storyteller of Jesus' life, as the, uh, and he tells Jesus as the one who steps forward in this story. The other gospel accounts talk about how Judas came into the garden and he kissed Jesus on the cheek. You remember this? It's like one of the most poignant parts of the story. Are you all awake still? You're thinking, you're like, okay, that was a little heavy for the first point. Tell me it gets better. We're in the last hours of Jesus' life, still. But hang with me. So John stands out, right, as this unique storyteller of Jesus' life where Judas isn't coming and kissing him on the cheek. Now, all of a sudden, they're asking him, whom are you seeking? Jesus is asking them that, and They say, Jesus, the Nazarene. And what does Jesus do? He takes control of the situation and he says, I am. Now, interpreters have added the he. So as to make it like a proper grammatical sentence. But make no mistake, in the original languages, he is saying, I am. Very poignant way to identify himself. What is he doing? Look at this. Look at, read read, uh, verses five through eight with me. Whom do you seek, Jesus says. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Judas who betrayed him was standing there. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Hello. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them, I told you that I am. If you seek me, let these guys go. Jesus is subtly, or not so subtly, identifying himself as this great I am of Exodus 3. 
the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, when he says, who will I say that will, is sending me? And God says to him out of the burning bush, I am who I am. Jesus is unequivocally claiming to be God. And he's done this all throughout the book of John. He does it in uh, chapter 8 a couple different times when he says, I am. And they want to kill him. That's how you know he just said something important is when the people around him want to kill Jesus. And again, they're trying to kill him. And something important happens here as well. There's a subtle reality which Jesus wants to make sure we see. Though the soldiers refer to Jesus the Nazarene, his humanity, this, this dirty little town north in the north Israel called Nazareth, out of which they said nothing good can come out of that town. You're that guy? That's what we're seeking. And Jesus, in his subtle ways, goes, I am. And when he does so, knocks however many soldiers there are to the ground on their backside. And I just like to picture Jesus doing this while they're down on the ground. I don't know if they got back up. And they were like, okay, so now, and Jesus asked them again, so no, for real, who are you seeking? Like, as if to say, in their ignorance, they just got knocked on their backside by two words that Jesus spoke. And they got up, and, and now he's asking them the same question. Jesus of Nazareth, somebody will say that. He's going to knock us down again. He is the powerful God of the universe that just spoke two words to dozens of soldiers, and in two words, knocks them on their behind. If he can do that for them, what will he do that for us? If he can do that for, in that situation, and in what situation will he do that for us? When the enemies come against us, will he stand in power? Of course he will. It's what he does. But if he doesn't, he's still in control. He still has the power to do that, and Jesus is intent on showing that his power is unmatched. Doesn't matter how many soldiers they have, Jesus is more powerful. Doesn't matter how many, how many enemies have come against him or the strength of their resolve to get him, Jesus could have ended this all with a word. But instead, in Matthew, this parallel account, in Matthew, Jesus says to Peter, hey, Pete, like, just stand down, bro. He doesn't actually say that. He says this. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Of course he can. There's something greater here going on. And the greater thing that God is doing is that he is showing that he is powerful. He is the God who will rescue his people from slavery. He has done it before. That's what he's ref referencing. I am the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. If you read with me Exodus 6, it'll come up on the screen. Exodus 6, verse 6, when God identifies himself in this conversation to Moses, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Do you see this? I will deliver you with an outstretched arm and with great 
acts of judgment. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for, your, for a possession, for I am the Lord. It's that God that Jesus is saying, that was me. That was me. And if I did it for them, certainly I will do it for you. Whatever it is that's enslaving us, he will also take us out from being burdened by that. But it's not physical stuff, not even emotional stuff. No, he's going straight to the core of the issue, which is our spiritual problem, our spiritual enslavement to the enemy, to the world, to our flesh, to death, and to sin. That's what he's come to rescue us from. So this is kind of obvious to us, right, that he's doing this. If you read this before and like all of a sudden you just read this and you went, oh my gosh. He said two words and he knocked this entire cohort of soldiers to the ground on their backside and then what happens? Maybe my favorite part of the story. Good old Peter shows up. Like you just love Peter, don't you? You just identify with him so well. So get this, right? This is you and me. Maybe it's just me. Jesus knocks this cohort of soldiers down with two words. And Judas, or Jesus, excuse me, I can't even get the names right. All right. Peter takes out a little dagger. And is ready to take on all the soldiers. With his one dagger. They, they, the scriptures are clear. They have weapons. Peter has a dagger. And he swings, right? And he's clumsy when he does it. So if you know anything about weaponry in the Roman uh, way, uh, this word right here is for a short dagger. They had other swords, but this is a word for a short dagger, which would have been used for stabbing, not slicing. Peter doesn't even know how to use this thing. He slices. And he, or he could have maybe done this, but either way, he gets the ear of Malchus. And I don't know what Malchus's long-term response was. But Jesus picks up his ear, puts it back on. I would imagine that would have stopped me in my tracks if I was Malchus. Right? We're in this. I don't mean to make light of it, but at the same time, we're in this. And, and when Peter shows up, you can't help but see the irony of our own lives. See, if it's not for Judas who comes and he accuses Jesus of not doing things the way that he would want to do them, maybe we don't identify with that so quickly, but perhaps we can identify with the disciple who is ready to take on the world if only God would let me. I identify with that. And before we're too hard on Peter, let us be reminded of what Jesus has just said to him hours prior. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. Will you? Because before the night's over, you're gonna deny me three times. Now, if someone says that to you, if someone says that to me, if Jesus says that to me, which he has probably many times and I just haven't heard it, I'm probably gonna be like, no, nah, you're wrong. I'm gonna prove you wrong tonight. Don't you see that going on right here? A misguided 
powerful guy just trying to take control of the situation, not trusting Jesus to do what he said he was going to do, and taking out whatever weapon he could have to try and gain control of whatever small world that he could gain control over. The socks are out of order, and Peter needs them in the drawer. I would feel embarrassed if Jesus called me out in front of my friends. I would want to prove something. Maybe not to Jesus, but maybe to my friends. I would want to do something for Jesus. And we're just like him. We know that Jesus has the power to change our circumstances, but we we take up our daggers of our own power and try to bring the kingdom to earth with discipline and willpower and effort, and that's exhausting. And by the end of the night, Peter's got nothing left. Just minutes later that he'll find himself by a fire and a little girl will intimidate him into denying Jesus. He's just got nothing left in the tank. Jesus is in control. He is also powerful enough, although bridled in his power in this moment, that he speaks two words. They fall to their backside, but he is showing us who he is in these moments. And who he is is the Savior who is ready to drain this cup, this particular cup, for us. What cup, you ask? If you look in verse 11, right? So Peter gets done cutting off Malchus's ear. Other accounts tell us that Peter t- or Jesus touched Malchus's ear and healed it right away. In the middle of all this, some accounts say, hey, Pete, put it down. I could have called legions of angels. I already read that one. But this account says this to Peter. Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What cup? What is Jesus doing? What greater purpose is he denying his power truly, denying his disciples this vengeance against Judas, because wouldn't you want that? He's going after something greater. This cup that the Father has given me is none other than the cup of the wrath of God. We don't talk about that very often. We did sing about it in Man of Sorrows. We don't talk about the wrath of God very often. So today, let us be reminded of this wrath that God is storing up against every and all kind of sin Romans 1 said that the wrath of God is being revealed. It's being stored up. Psalm 75, verse 8. This is the wrath of God in the Old Testament. For in the land of the, uh, excuse me, for in the hand of the Lord, Psalm 75, verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's a cup that he is going to pour out over all wickedness upon the earth. Revelation, it's stored up for those that will not worship Jesus. Revelation, you know it's getting good when we've when we got a Revelation verse getting pulled up. Revelation verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, verses 9 and 10 would say this. There it is. 
And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels angels, and in the presence of the lamb. He's talking about hell. I want you to hear something real quick. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the presence of God right here. It is in the presence of the lamb, but you cannot access his mercy anymore. You cannot access his goodness He's there, and he won't help. It's a tough, tough reality. Well, then it's no wonder that Jesus prays this prayer in this garden on this night in Mark 14. It's with that that cup that he has in mind, this wrath that's stored up for all sin, for all humanity, for me, and for you. It's that cup that's about to pass before him when he is on the cross. When he prays this in 1436 and it says, Abba, the most personal language that he could use to his father. Dad, father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, the cup, that cup. The cup of wrath from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, friends, the wrath of God, which has stored up by each particular sin and every possible sin of all humans for all time, was what Jesus has in mind when he says, Will I not drink the cup that my Father will give to me? No one else gives it to him. Judas doesn't thrust it upon him. The enemy doesn't thrust it upon him. In the Father's will and goodness and mercy, he takes his own wrath, pours it into a cup figuratively, and gives it to his son spiritually for us. You see, the wrath of God is being stored up for all adulteries, all desired adulteries, every careless word, every ounce of gossip or slander, every lost temper, every bit of drunkenness and homosexuality, all kinds of sins for all kinds of people, we're storing it up. And we're constantly filling that cup. And it will be poured out on one of two people. For those that don't believe, be poured out on you for all of eternity. But for those that do, you get the cup of mercy. And Jesus gets your wrath. And so it's on the cross that we look forward to with Good Friday that the wrath of God is being poured out. That in the Father's love for us, he looks at his son in his most desperate need, his most desperate hour of need, his darkest time, 
I can't even imagine. If my Moses is crying out for dad to help, I'm going to help. But Jesus, looking at us in our deep need, pours out his full wrath on his son so we can live. Originally, I was supposed to preach through 27 today. There's no way. So look at this, right? If you don't believe in Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf, God will unmercifully pour out the wrath that you have earned upon you. He said this in the very beginning of the book of John. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise be to God. But that won't be everyone. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. He's looking to this. But for those who would believe, Romans 5, verse 8 and 9. Pull up eight for me, Nathan, and nine. For those who would believe in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, God will mercifully pour out the wrath that we have stored up upon Jesus. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse nine, since therefore we have now been justified, set right by the blood of Jesus, how much more shall we be saved by the Father, from the wrath, excuse me, by Jesus, from the wrath of God. We are saved not just from the penalty of sin, but the full extent of that being the wrath of God. Jesus willingly takes the cup of God's wrath and empties it to its last drop for those who would believe. For those that would believe that Jesus is Lord, the sent one, that we would believe that truly Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name, and that we would obey him, follow him, even when things don't go like we want. He took the cup of wrath on our behalf and gave us his mercy. And as he does, he beckons us into Gethsemane, joining him to see him for who he truly is. See, gardens have always played a huge role in this story of redemption in the Garden of Eden, now in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what is eternity look like but a renewed garden where there's a tree in the middle of it. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam used his power to satisfy himself, to obey creation, and to bring death for all. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, the true and better Adam, Jesus, uses his power to deny himself, satisfy his Father, obeying the Creator, not creation, bringing life to all. Though Adam would sit idly by while the serpent throws the world into chaos, Jesus, the true and better Adam, steps into the chaos to purchase that which was lost. Through Adam, though Adam hid himself from God in shame and in guilt, the true and better Adam named Jesus stands up when they're looking for him and he says, I am to remove our, our guilt and our shame. 
See, that's the symbolism here that God is fulfilling truly all of the promises of God are finding their yes and amen in Jesus in this night. So in this garden, this garden of redemption, not this garden of the fall, but this garden of redemption, that which was lost, redeeming that which was lost, will you join Jesus? Will you pray for your friends, with your family, knowing these realities are true? That they have opportunity not to drink from this cup of wrath, but to drink from the cup of God's mercy forever and ever. And not just for the there, but for the here. Will you, will you join us in continuing to pray for our friends in Zimbabwe, in Thailand, in India, who are truly trying to push past, push back the darkness with farming and, and with wells that need to be built and with just church planting and caring for the orphan. It's not just here in this room that the orphan is being cared for and not just in India. We pray for them when we uphold their arms as they're in battle through prayer because truly something awful awaits those that will not hear the name of Jesus. We pray that God would break in on them as much as he's broken in on us. Let's pray together. Lord, you know our hearts. You know whether we're more like Judas or like Peter. We also, you also know where we stand with you. We don't have to fake it with you. We can't fake it with you, even if we're trying. And so maybe some of us are here because someone else told us to be here or maybe it's because, you know, it's Sunday morning. It's what we're supposed to do. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, in your Holy Spirit, would you convict, bring to faith those that need to be brought to faith? I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't people in this room that need you maybe for the first time. For those of us that do believe already, oh, would you remind us of this great cost? That when temptation hits us this week, we've got the power of God in us, the power that rose Jesus from the dead in us by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to say no to whatever is coming against us. Would you remind us of the good news that the wrath of God doesn't have to be on us? And that when we sing about you being better, it's because of this decision and the thousands that led up to it and the thousands that came after it. For our spiritual benefit, did you lay your life down? And so may we just give you thanks. May we respond this week with a renewed desire to live and love you.
that truly when you came and died for us, it wasn't just to give us new habits on a Sunday, but in the still small moments when we're responding to our husband, to our wife, when the socks are all over the house, when our boss just doesn't see our value, when that customer said, said yes over the phone but won't send in the paperwork and we're tempted, or when our kids just will not obey, remind us of who we are in you, sons and daughters of God Most High. So Lord, we sing this song, but we also, Lord, ask that you'd invade us, invade our hearts, remind us of what's most important in life so that we may seek to follow you in all things. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.